He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let me sit down. You may be seated. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. And Jim and Cindy, I know many of us are aware that um, Friday night at 11.59 and into Saturday morning at midnight, Jim officially uh, retired from the headmaster position at Westside Christian Academy, and he has led with uh, integrity and courage for 12 years. And so after you say hi to Pastor Glory and his son, uh, thank Jim and Cindy for uh, being people of great courage. And we thank God for your example in this time where many Christian leaders don't finish well, and you finish so very well. Uh, so that part anyway. And uh, yesterday, we were uh, at a wedding reception. Mallory and I were, had the pleasure of being seated with Jim and Cindy. And Mallory, yesterday afternoon, said, I, you know, being around Jim and Cindy, there's such a serenity, such a peace about them. And there are a few times in life where I'll come into contact with mature Christians, and there's a, a kind of incandescence about them, a kind of light that radiates that's hard to put your finger on. But if you're a Christian, you know exactly what that is. And so thank you, Whitemans, for serving your church well for serving Westside Christian Academy well, for uh, really the, this region. And uh, my job now is to show self-restraint, not making Jim, or asking Jim to be busier than he's ever been by helping me in the church. Uh, so <laughs> tell me no many times, uh, pa uh, Pastor Jim. Well, the old saying, contrast is the mother of clarity. Uh, I've come back to that many times, actually. I think there's great truth in that aphorism that if you want to know what something is about, if you want to uh, see it clearly, then you set it up against a relief of what that thing is, is not. And today's passage uh, does precisely that. It's a, it's a story of contrast. It's very straightforward. And it really packs a punch that this story, the Pharisee and the tax collector, maybe you've heard it called the Pharisee and the publican, uh, sets two men. Uh, they go to the same place, to the temple. Uh, they do the same thing. They pray. And yet their hearts couldn't be further from one another. And in this parable, really, we get a microcosm. Perhaps you're here today. Say, why would anyone in 2023 ever become a Christian? What's it really all about? What does God want? Here we have in sharp relief what the whole picture is about because this cuts straight through, I think, every human heart. So first, we'll start with the first man and the first prayer. Uh, someone here who we're told is simply a Pharisee. Now, we've met them many times in the Gospel of Luke. And for us to really understand this, I have to go to some length uh, now to, to rehabilitate the Pharisee, if you will. 
Uh, so if you've grown up in Sunday school, you know, you say, well, the Pharisees are the bad guys. Jesus is always after them. And you kind of, you, you know, you miss the point if we smuggle that in uh, at, at, this, uh, at this point. You see, the Pharisee would have been a, a good upstanding person. Uh, he would have been somebody with a, a, a well-ordered domestic life. He would have been someone who knew the Bible well. He was scrupulous about keeping the well as, as, as uh, the, the, the Word of God, uh, that he exceeded many of his other peers, that no one, anyone reading this story and was introduced to a Pharisee and the tax collector, the first century Jewish mind would have immediately said, oh, Pharisee ba a good, tax collector bad. And so the Pharisee here, uh, we meet him, and his real issue, you'll notice, uh, Jesus tells us in verse 9, is that he's lumped in this group of people, which I think, again, the great mass of humanity, is that he's trusting in himself that he's righteous. That it's about self-justification. That as we've looked at God's law, that as he would have, again, known what we call the Hebrew Bible, right here, the Old Testament, he would have known it very well, that instead of understanding why God gave it to us, again, we've been over this many times, but the purpose of the law is to cultivate tender hearts, that those who would come under the, the word of God would have uh, more receptivity to the things of God, to love God more, and to love neighbor more. But instead of that, what the Pharisees do is that they use the law as another means of proving their own worth, to trust in themselves. Now, you don't have to turn there because you, you'll recall exactly, but going back to chapter 10, that there's a lawyer. This is the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, and the, the lawyer gets in it with Jesus, and Luke tells us, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. And again, in chapter 16, very similarly, uh, chapter 16 and verse 15, and he said to this group of Pharisees, Jesus did, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. What is at stake precisely? Is the impulse within this Pharisee, as is an impulse within each one of us, to say, I'm going to prove my own worth. That it's about what I can bring to the table. I don't need God's help. I'll do it myself. And as an indication of how he's using the law, I think it comes right out in verse 12 in his own words. Where's he, uh, you know, putting all of his merit? You know, where, where are his chips, so to speak? And he says this, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. You say, well, why is that significant? Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, required all committed Jews to fast one day a year, the Day of Atonement. Say, every good Jew would have known, if I'm being a good Jew, I'll fast one day a year. Here he's saying, I fast two days a week. Would have been Mondays and Thursdays. He exceeds the requirement of the law. And then you skip down to tithes. So again, a good Jew would have known exactly there were certain things that you tithed on. A tithe was a tenth. That there were certain parts of your portfolio, if you will, that you would have given a tenth on. And then others you were not required to give a tenth on. And what he's saying here is that I'm actually one. I give a tenth on all of my portfolio, every aspect of my wealth. So you see how he understands the law. It's the letter of the law, and the idea is to exceed it to prove your own self-worth that I don't need God, that I've done it myself. Rather than saying, again, may my heart be made tender by the things of God, and may I be open to my neighbor. Now, notice his prayer. I always, uh, we, we've heard a few chuckles, I think, in the first and second hour, right? The Pharisee's prayer in verse 11. The real question is, can it even legitimately be called a prayer? Because who's it about? 
He, he does mention God, but the main actor in the prayer is, is I. In just a few short sentences, not even sentences, this Pharisee manages to mention himself five times about what he can do. Look at what I can do. I'm not like other men. I do this and I do that. That it's not about God, it's about himself. And what he does, the scary part of this kind of prayer, is that he puts God in his debt. Can you see that? Well, I've done this, therefore I'm a good guy, therefore you're going to bless me, God. And what will spill over into our next point, that Jesus, in verse 9 again, that this Pharisee is trusting in himself, that he, on his own merit, would come in right relationship with God, and then the second part, and treated others with contempt. Now, this is why even non-Christians can be incredibly fascinated with Jesus the Nazarene. Because in one little line, you say he puts his finger, and he does this routinely, really hundreds of times, right on a key point of human psychology. Have you noticed? I've certainly noticed it in my own heart that the more elevated sense of self that I have, that I go down the path of thinking, boy, aren't I great, there's a corollary, there's a kind of direct relationship into my view towards others. And Jesus nails it, that pride and self-justification, look at how great I am, is always accompanied by, I'm glad I'm not like all the others. And that is exactly what he does. He compares himself, doesn't he? God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other real lawbreakers. All those people who've, you know, taken advantage of others in business and those who've cheated in their relationships and those foul-mouthed people. I'm not like those. And friends, this is what we call the comparison trap. That comparisons are funny things because they require um, a standard. Uh, they require some, you know, launching point as to what you're trying to accomplish. So, you know, I think of an example like back in high school, uh, the SAT, when I, you know, entered those, don't worry, juniors, it's a kind of rite of passage, I remember it well, and you go in, you think, oh, the SAT, what is this, and you say, oh, it's scored out of 1,600, kind of odd, isn't it, what, 1,600, and then you say, well, 1,200's quite a good score, say immediately, would 1,200 naturally strike you as a good, 1,200 out of 1,600, kind of odd, you know, three out of four, not that good, oh, actually, it is quite good, many colleges would accept it, the point being is the comparison game uh, must be anchored to the right standard. Uh, it reminds me of the old story of, you know, the guys taking the train up from London to Scotland, and it's in the middle of winter, and it's a particularly dreary day. It's very gray out, and about halfway uh, on his trip up north, he looks out in the gloom, and he sees a beautiful white cottage. And against the backdrop of this dreary English winter, the, the white cottage looked so bright. He said, oh, it must be the, the purest cottage, uh, the purest white there ever would be. And he goes up to Scotland, and he handles his business affairs, and he's coming back down on the train, only this time there's been a fresh fallen snow. And he looks out the same window, and he sees the same cottage, and he says, could that be the same white cottage? How could it be? Because against the white pure snow, the cottage was putrid and yellowed. That's the problem with comparisons. Do we have the right ontic referent? And if the point is to just compare ourselves to others, you say, friends, we, we know this. This is one of the things I find I can't repeat often enough in the pulpit, but comparisons are incredibly toxic for the soul. And what's happened in relatively recent times is what we now lump under the heading of social media is 
the most powerful tool, really, and the, the designers of this talk openly about it, that it's, it's a, 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 an advanced tool for comparisons. Because what do we do? So, well, you know, here I am in Chiang Mai, Thailand, riding an elephant, and you put that picture up, and you say, well, I want everybody to see what an exciting life I live, and, you know, I've got this tremendous freedom, and I can do all these fun things, when in reality, that that same person can be feeling very empty, could be quite cruel to their loved ones. And so you get the idea that we have these tools to compare ourselves, to have artificial selves and false selves, and it really affects our well-being. Say, how much better than to post pictures and try to compare ourselves than to say, sit down, men with your barber, ladies with your stylist, and meet them face to face and talk about life. That either we're gonna be like this Pharisee, I compare myself, at least I'm not like that guy, and I'll have an inflated sense of self. Aren't I great? Or, like what I think social media does, God, why'd you give me this body? I wish I had that body. I wish I looked more like that. God, I wish I could go to fun places like that. God, I wish I had a job that was a little more exhilarating than just my job seemingly pushing paper. You get the idea, and you have this sense of, God, do you, you care about me? See, comparisons are toxic for for the soul, and this man, part of his self-justification, how he uses the law, is really built on comparing himself to whom he perceives as the real baddies. And you notice another part about this that I couldn't help but notice. Verse 13, you said the tax collector, maybe they entered together. That's not clear. They're both there at the same time, but the, the tax collector is, is off by himself, and you're like, well, how did the Pharisee know that he's there? It's as if he's come in, you know, you, you come into church and instead of thinking, well, you know, what is the Lord going to tell me today? How's the Lord going to convict me and challenge me? How can I be a blessing to other people? He's coming in and saying, oh, look, look at that guy over there. Can't believe he's, you know, his point of reference is wrong. It's not about God. It's about himself. It's about pushing off against others. And it's quite ugly, isn't it? I'll show you how ugly. Here's my... Austin's summary of the prayer. You ready? Lord, thank you for not making me like those liberal theologians. <laughs> Lord, thank you for making me such a great husband and dad all the time, not like those other husbands and dads. And Lord, thank you for all the wonderful people in the church who do things right all the time. We exceed all the other churches. Amen. So, and say it with a smile, but you say, if you really unpack that kind of thing, it's, it's, it's ugly. Now, well, notice that this Pharisee's attitude, you say, well, what is this really, you know, Pharisees, Jesus, ancient dialogue, parable, what does it really have to do with us, 2023? Do you notice how closely this idea of self-justification how it lies deep within each one of us. Say you're here today, you're a materialist, you're an atheist, you don't believe the word of the Bible. Maybe you can agree on the great impulse in each one of us to justify ourselves. You, so you, you, you make a decision. You, 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 maybe you even know that you make a mistake, that your immediate reaction, at least mine is, is to justify myself. This is why I did it. It was the right. I dig in my heels and I say, I've got it. I don't need help. I knew what I was doing. That's my impulse. And that's precisely the problem. 
You ask somebody then who does entertain the idea of God, which most in America apparently do, and you ask them, and you say, this is something we've all known a long time, and you ask them. You come up to them on the street. Do you believe in God? Yes, I think I do. Do you believe in the afterlife? You know, a good place to go when you die? Yes, I think you, you do. Do you think you're going to heaven? Yes, I think I'm going to heaven. Why are you going to heaven? Because I'm a good person. Well, how do you know you're a good person? Well, haven't you seen the others? I mean, don't you know about Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Bernie Madoff and all the baddies out there? You know, I'm a good guy. It's exactly the same as the Pharisee. Exactly the same. I don't need God. I can do it myself. Look at what a great chap I am, and I'll get on with it. And friends, really, verse 14, we live in an time where there are many universalists, those who just say, well, it doesn't really matter what you do or what you think. We're all going to be in the same place at the end. Hear clearly the words of Jesus, right? I tell you, this man there, he's referencing the publican or the tax collector. He's the one right before God. And then that little, that little rather than the other, really is, is not the other. That this Pharisee, though on the outside, perfect family guy, nice guy, good person, honest in his dealings, but a person who deep down said, I don't need the mercy of God, that this ultimately at the end is not an acceptable approach to God, that prideful self-justification is an affront to the God who sent Jesus. Now, dear brothers and sisters, I tread lightly here, and again, I always preach to myself before I preach to anybody else, but do you see that our congregation, any congregation, has particular hazards uh, that can confront them? And one of these, for a congregation like ours, is precisely this attitude of the Pharisee that we're an eminently, I, I do believe we, we are a good congregation. I think we're honest in our business dealings. I think we're, we're for the most part, we're, we're, we're good on speech, that our lives look pretty put together, that we're accomplished in our roles at work, that we've studied hard, we've worked hard, we've outpaced a lot of the others, and our real tendency could very well be, God, I'm doing pretty well without you. I'm doing just fine. That's a real danger for us. And so alternatively, what does Jesus want? Not the Pharisees' self-sufficiency, but rather this publican. Now, again, I started by saying we needed to rehabilitate the Pharisee as being the model of the good guy in society. The tax collector would have been the opposite. I don't know who, you know, who in Avon we could picture this as, but the tax collector would have been ethnically Jewish. Uh, they often were, and what their job was that they were hired by the Romans to go out and collect taxes to, uh, you know, to support the, the empire, to, to prop up the imperial, imperial rule, and so they go along to their fellow Jews, and you see they were quickly viewed as kind of complicit in the enslavement or the oppressiveness of the Romans. So they'd go around collecting taxes for the Romans, but you say, well, how would a tax collector then make his money? You know, if the Romans demand 2%, what you actually have to do then is, is, is demand a little bit more. And whatever you have as your margin, that was your income. So how tempting it would have been, right, for a tax collector to say, well, here's what I know the Romans are going to need from me. I need to charge my fellow a little bit more. And this spilled out into, quite frankly, theft and extortion. That this tax collector would have been widely regarded as somebody who plundered his own people, who ruined families, who looked out for himself, widely known, you know, all over Westlife magazine, so to speak. And I think that there would have been a shock even to see him in the temple that day. What's a guy like that 
doing here. He's done so much damage. Everybody knows it. He's not one of us. Send him away. But this publican, this tax collector, look at the difference of his prayer, which is a real prayer, not about his accomplishments and the things that he does, right? He stands far off, that this is a mark of humility, unlike the publican, notice, who's standing where everyone can see him, but the tax collector is standing far off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. Again, this is verse 13. And he beat his breast, no doubt a symbol of real contrition that he's conflicted. He's having a moment where God has opened his eyes to what he's done. Lord, I've been so very cruel to other people. I've done so much damage to these other families. I have looked out for myself for many years. And he comes not in an effort to justify himself, but in an effort to do what? To say, God, be merciful to me. In other words, he's looking right at the sacrificial system there in the temple. God, might these sacrifices be for me a sinner? And this, friends, echoes to other parts of the Bible, like Psalm 51, David, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David pens those words after committing adultery and being complicit in murder. And I hope that at this point, as you're reading this with me, that you see this as wonderful news. Wonderful news to everyone in this room, everyone who would ever read Luke 18, everyone would hear about the real Jesus, that he is merciful and gracious to contrite and repentant sinners like us. That far from turning this man who no doubt did bad things, things that were deep and dark, instead he casts himself at the mercy of God that he might be renewed. And it is this man who walks away in right relationship with God. And you'll notice again how well this maps on to the entirety of the Bible. It was fashionable in higher critical circles, you know, at least 100 years ago, to uh, distance Jesus and Paul, you know, to say, well, Jesus was this nice Galilean chap who went around doing nice things for the dispossessed. And Paul invented Christianity of Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of people. Now we see why Luke 18 from verse 9 is a microcosm of the gospel. It's exactly what Paul says. Listen to Romans 3, maybe the most famous passage on this matter. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament points to Jesus, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right in God's presence by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, there is no distinction. Exactly what the Pharisee missed. He built his life on the distinction. There's those kind of people over there, and then there's people like me. And I'll be acceptable to God because I've outpaced the others, and I'm a good chap. Not good. Alternatively, God, I need your grace. I'm a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus. 
And it is at the end of the day, as Jesus has repeated, it is the humble and contrite person who recognizes their sin, who sees, as we sang just moments ago, that that vile sinner, that's me. That's me, that I need Jesus. So the tax collector considers his condition before God and the holy God rather than comparing himself against the record of others. And this is what pleases Jesus all through the ages, that we would cast ourselves upon his mercy, relying on the blood of Christ to redeem us. A few closing applications. Maybe you're, you know, would be someone like me, you've been a Christian a long time, and you see there are some parallels between this Pharisee and the things that crop up in my life, that how easily I can go down the path of saying, well, look at what I've done, and I'm a good person, and I do better than the others, and I'm really counting on that rather than the wonderful news that Jesus has died for me and that I need God's grace. And today is really a time to renew that commitment, that mindset of what he's done and how he's rescued me. Others, maybe you're not a Christian today, not a Christ follower. You're here because it's a holiday weekend. And I think that this idea of self-justification is the default position of every human heart. And you ask yourself, isn't this a very tiring thing? It's a tiring thing to say, God, I, I, if I could just, you know, do enough, you know, put up an, a nice front and I keep doing this the rest of my life, that's what really matters. You say, that gets very exhausting and the level of duplicity that is required, I know because I tried, you know deep down that you're not a perfect person, that you can go through the motions, but what about all those impulses? What about the things that I've done in my life? And there is a better way than self-justification and that is to, Give your life to Jesus to receive his grace. To from this day forward, you say, you know what? I am a follower of Jesus. I've, I've received what he's offered by his blood, and I follow him knowing that it's not about my own merits, but about his. And finally, church family, this passage stuck in my mind because it helped me run through the example of what happened if somebody walked into our congregation that just was a, a little too far out there for us. You know, or maybe they, we knew that via Westlife magazine that they were a notorious extortioner. Or somebody who came in and said, I can't believe she's here. We know the things that she does or has done with her body. Why is she among us? At least I'm not like that. Oh, that must be terrible. Rather to recall Luke 18. Say, God, I'm a great sinner and you've been a great savior to me. And there's no person who could walk through the doors of providence with a sincere and contrite heart that would be too far to receive the blood of Jesus and that may Providence Church be a place that no matter who would come with a sincere heart that they would find a gracious reception by a redeemed people. You know the old saying is church for the good people. You say no church is actually only for sinners. <laughs> church is only for the place of those who see their real need, who see their need for the mercy of Christ and have not relied on themselves, but on God alone. May that be our banner. May we never be perceived as pharisaical, those who justify themselves, but a lot who's been in desperate need, who has received this wonderful gift, the good news, and as long as we are able to meet as a church family, that that would ring out for, uh, from us and that many would be saved and given the hope that is in the gospel alone. So I'll pray, and then we'll sing. Gracious Father, I thank you for this memorable 
parable from Jesus, a simple contrast. Two men, same place, same motions, very different heart. Lord, help us to be on guard against any kind of pharisaical tendencies. Hey, God, look at me. Good guy. Give. Got it together. Watch my mouth. Don't go to the bar. Whatever you'd have. Verse, Lord, the, the truth of it, which is, God, I, I, have, I have sinned against you, and I need to be saved, and I need your mercy, and thank you for giving us that in the person of Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection. And Lord, for each of us here to see that this is wonderful news, that you are not, as some would see you, as angry, ready to smite us, embittered up there, but rather that you've gone to great lengths to redeem sinners like us, that you've put forth your only begotten Son in history, that whoever believe in him would have eternal life. <laughs> so Lord, help us to posture ourselves as those who are humble, those who are recipients of your divine grace. And Lord, in a time where many are seeing and predicting even more of the collateral damage of, of a cultural view that has not only been about self-justification, but has caused people to do things that really hurt themselves, then may we be a church that our initial impulse isn't, oh, why are those kinds of people here, but rather to say, actually, it's, it is a, an opportunity to receive the broken and the hurting, and that all of us need your grace. So may you be lifted high. May we be the church you want us to be, for Christ's sake. Amen. Now let's stand and sing this final hymn together. <laughs>